Hello. On the podcast today, we're honored to chat with Dr. Hannah Reichel, an Associate Professor of Reformed Theology at Princeton Theological Seminary. Hannah is an internationally recognized Barth scholar, and their research interests include Christology, theological anthropology, eschatology, theological epistemology, political theology, queer theology, and the theologies of the digital. Hannah holds a doctorate in systematic theology from Heidelberg University and an MDiv in theology and a bachelor's of science degree in economics. Hannah is the author of the brand new book entitled After Method, Queer Grace, Conceptual Design, and The Possibility of Theology, which is published by Westminster John Knox Press. Hannah, so excited to have you on the show today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's great to have an opportunity to chat. So I had to give like a very succinct bio. You have an extensive uh, background and lots of research interests and you're on different boards. Can you talk, is there anything that I missed that other people should know about you? Um, no, there, I mean, as you were reading it, it sounded like a lot of ologies. <laughs> so I recognize that that's a high degree of abstraction. <laughs> I'm sorry for that. <laughs> no, it's fantastic. Um, so I thought we'd start a little bit with kind of your your journey in academia, and also if you want to integrate how your faith has shaped your journey. Yeah, thank you. Um, so uh, uh, up front, right? So English is my not my first language. I grew up in Germany, um, so you will rec find the accent in the background every now and then. Also, me uh, looking for the right words and not always finding the right words. Um, um, yeah, so. Um, my both my parents are ministers in the Lutheran Church, so I kind of grew up um, um, with the strong sense of um, yeah of like a faith background that just um, permeated my world. But then both my parents um, worked in diverse ministries, um, so I also um, both in like church and then parachurch organizations, lots of uh, more international and and ecumenical uh, contexts. And that from early on really shaped my upbringing, not just because we moved around a lot. And so I grew up in different places, right? Um, and different kind of contexts that were also shaped differently faith-wise, places such as um, Venezuela and the Ivory Coast and Lebanon and Argentina wow. and and so on. Um, but so I, I, I really uh, grew up with this understanding that church was this very weird and wonderful wide and large um body right that uh weirdly connects us to other people all around the globe that you can you know come to a totally different place and you may actually not feel like you share much with people uh culturally socially politically and yet at the same time like you're there and you're part in some way of that same body and the same family and that is just very miraculous uh in many ways right and that gives us yeah. an opportunity to also be with one another um, in a way that we do have to kind of grapple with these differences um, all the time, right? It makes it hard. Um, but also somehow like there's a foundation for that that uh, precedes us and that is not merely rooted in who we are and what we like and what we like about one another or not, right? But that kind of um, is a different kind of foundation. Um, but then at the same time, right, the, the concrete uh, manifestations of church also often are a very narrow place um, in different ways, right? They're tied to particular, um, yeah, 
you know, expressions that that faith has taken in particular contexts and where people really believe quite vastly different things about what is important and how what it means to be body of Christ in the world and how that faith gets to express itself. Um, and so I, I feel like that tension has uh, marked uh, my upbringing a bit. So both in, in like the, the sense of there is this foundation, but then also it's something that in every concrete place is a struggle to navigate, right? How to actually create belonging together um, and how to turn that uh, vague feeling of belonging with God and therefore belonging together into actual community. So I think like the growing up in, in different contexts and always feeling like very impressed, but also awkward in them to some extent um, has, and maybe some sense of um, itinerancy, right? Like not ultimately um, having a home in any of these settings has, has definitely shaped me a lot. And it has also raised a lot of questions for me. Um, and that ultimately, I think, uh, led to my um, ending up in academia, <laughs> um, which was not my original plan, right? My um, one of uh, there there were a couple of experiences that were really formative um, for me faith-wise that happened in other contexts. Uh, one was um, oh, so several, right? Um, to maybe just yeah, flush out some of these things. So, for example. Um, I attended a, a Catholic high school and it was a boys school. <laughs> I actually chose it because it was a boys school. I, I wanted to kind of, I, I mean, at that point they were admitting more openly, but somehow that, that fascinated me. Um, and, but then I, I was a Protestant in that setting and there was like uh, weekly and daily communion services um, where like throughout my time at high school, I was sitting there and not, you know, um, not welcome at the table at the same time. And, and that was, um, even at my graduation service, I remember that, right? Like that graduation service where like somehow this is a moment of, of a milestone for me personally and a celebration and also a celebration for the whole class. And then me and a couple of other Protestants at the same time are singled out. And, um, and, uh, and I grappled a lot with that um, question of um, on whose invitation am I here? Right. And and um, and so this is one point that uh, became really significant for me in my faith to say, right, at the end of the day, um, the invitation is extended by God. And whether you other person here in this pew like it or not, <laughs> you know, I will remain here in this community. Um, and obviously that doesn't just extend to the, the Protestant Catholic uh, uh, divide, but that that was a place that it asserted itself for me in that context. Um, I spent some time after high school in Argentina, um, doing something like a, uh, social service type, uh, work with grassroots organization, right. Um, with some understanding that I came from a very privileged place, you know, and wanting to give something back, you know, with these youthful idealisms, um, and very quickly, uh, when I landed there, kind of realized um, I'm not giving anything back, right? Like I don't, I don't know how to how to work in this context. People who are have very little like formal training um, have like way of an advantage on me in terms of like just knowing how the world works that they're moving in that I do not, and they're actually giving me an education and information by taking me along in the work that they're doing. They're actually investing in me. You know, they may not have any degrees or any uh, access to um, 
much of the world that I have access to and they're taking me along and investing in me so that I maybe at some point um, um, can, yeah, uh, in, in, you know, uh, have a different uh, impact in the places that I am in. And that was very humbling. Um, and, and that was also a context where I encountered the church in, again, in, in a different kind of ambivalence, maybe. So, um, right, in, in Argentina, the church has a history of being really complicit with the dictatorships that um, the country has visited, uh, has, has experienced. Um, and so, uh, and obviously, like, the longer history of the colonial, um, of the colonial history um, <clears throat> that the church was uh, not just complicit in, but also driving to a great extent. Um, and at the same time, um, in many of the concrete struggles um, that I uh, was able to witness and participate uh, to a degree, um, I also then found people of profound, like militant faith, kind of committed to the struggle of peoples on the ground and and making a great difference there at by. So, for example, in settings, and these were often like not explicitly faith or religious settings. So, for example. There would be a movement uh, like for landless people and to just appropriate basically um, land that was owned maybe by an international corporation or was just not cultivated. And then just to create uh, homes for people there uh, with very little resources. And then you would have, you know, the police or even the military trying to uh, get them out. And then priests and nuns would say, well, we're celebrating a mass here. You cannot evict us. Or... Um, well, maybe arrest me and I can write a letter to the Vatican and that will give us a completely different type of um, publicity and kind of political um, weight in the situation. Um, so that was that was deeply formative for me. Um, and then another context um, was uh, I went to study in Lebanon um, where, um, and at that time I was already um, uh studying theology because after the Argentina thing I was like okay I have I have all these big questions I need I need to <laughs> somehow figure out things uh um about justice and solidarity and God and the world and um yeah and, and the role of the church and the role of faith and all of that and whether a better world is possible on some of these um faith grounds that at the same time have often been so um bad in their impact on people's lives um and then also with the um distinct impression that even like often the very where the church um kind of went in public stands or denounced injustice um that sometimes that was done with good intentions but also with very little understanding of like how actual things work so particularly right um economic systems <laughs> um and uh, like larger political um trajectories and power constellations and so forth um and so i felt like okay i need to get a better understanding of all of that i need to do and this is where um this other degree came in of like i i i have these theological questions and it seems the right it it se also seems the right um place for me to work out uh, many of my questions but um 
and I need to, I need to know, know more about history and politics and uh, economics. And I felt like I could read up on, on history and politics, but I did not understand economics at all. So that's why uh, I studied it. Um, I did not end up understanding it, to be very honest. Um, yeah, and then uh, during my theological studies, I went to Lebanon for a year because I, again, was very interested in this and in kind of the... Um, tensions and or intersections between faith and politics and all the political constellations and violence. Um, and many it, from Germany, and it makes a lot of sense, many uh, theologians go to Israel at some point, right? And I was always driven to kind of look on the other side of the fence. So I was like, I'm going to go to Lebanon. Um, I want to learn Arabic. I want to learn Islamic theology. I want to understand the conflicts from a, from a different side. Um, and in that context, also, what really came to life for me were kind of the doctrinal questions that often are very abstract. So, right, how we think of God as like, um, you know, one God or in a Trinitarian sense, um, because, right, there are different faith traditions on the ground um, that, that conceptualize God differently. Are they speaking of the same God? And what difference do our different understandings make for how we think of community, for how we think of our relationship to the world around us. And same with the Christological questions where like we studied in seminary all the, or at university at that time, um, different Christological heresies that were alive maybe in the third, fourth and fifth century. And then suddenly you have concretely existent communities that still organize around these different beliefs. Um, it's not just an extinct heresy somewhere in a corner of church history. Um, and to kind of get a better grasp of what is at stake, right? What are the different questions that people are asking? What is this? How are these live commitments um, and and community forming and and not just abstract and metaphysical questions? Um, so that kind of always drove me um, uh, deeper into theology and into doctrine and into questions of method. Um, um, yeah, and this is how I eventually ended up teaching theology mostly because i'm still trying to understand it no i love i love how you just explained your journey and what an amazing background having traveled to so many different countries seeing how people have expressed their faith in so many different ways how you've been able to adapt um into these different cultures um and to see the beauty of these different uh faith communities around the world um, and also recognizing some of the harm, right, that you pointed out, uh, whether it was politically, um, through the church, or uh, other ways. Um, were there any times in your journey, Hannah, where you were feeling maybe uh, more harmed and by the church, maybe you're in a specific country and you saw maybe the way that the church expressed certain beliefs um, or the way that the church treated people um, where you felt like maybe do I really belong here or should I just leave the church? Did, did you ever encounter those feelings? So I, I definitely encountered a lot of um, dissatisfaction with church as uh, actually experienced. But somehow, for me, leaving it was never a choice. Um, um, and yeah, I've um, and I, I 
I think it's a totally legitimate option, right, for people who get harmed as well. And I don't think that salvation or whatever we mean by it can only be found in the church in the strong sense that sometimes the history, the historical church has asserted. Um, but because, and I mean, we talk about faith, right? And faith, our beliefs and faith is also maybe a trust in God. Um, it was, but for me, it was maybe primarily something like, this is God holding on to me, right? Like, I, this is not something that I can let go because um, uh, of what I like about it or not. And that that faithfulness that I experienced from God um, kind of, mm, like, I, I have a relatively relaxed relationship to, like, yeah, I can leave the space or that space, but I will, I will not fall out of that relationship. At the same time, it directs me back, right, to other people who claim to be held by the same commitment. Um, I do have that conversation a lot, especially with queer students, um, where I often give them the advice. I, I mean, not the advice, that's the wrong uh, thing, but I feel like often there are, or there are students, uh, people more uh, broadly speaking, right, who for their own experience come to the point where they're now asking basically for permission to leave. And I think we need to give them that permission. Uh, um, I don't think church in and of itself is an end in itself. And so it's also not something that demands our ultimate allegiance um, and our ultimate sacrifice in any any kind of way. Um, right. So personally, my I my sense of vocation and calling is to work from within the church and to create better versions of it wherever I am um, to the extent that I am capable of doing so and also relying on other people to kind of, you know, call me out on the things where I'm, I'm not doing that. Um, and I also think that that's not necessary. Not everyone has to do that. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about some of the challenges that, some of your LGBTQ students have expressed with the church um, kind of questions that they asked you or issues that they brought up that they're wrestling with. Because especially here in the States, we see a lot of Christianity aligned with some alt-right political systems that are discriminating against different communities. Uh, right now, especially we see it with the transgender community. Um, and so I can imagine seeing a lot more trans folks uh, leaving the church uh, if they're feeling um, like, you know, my Christian church particularly is voting and supporting people who are discriminating against me and setting up systems that are going to continue to oppress me. Um, this is one example. Um, but I'm curious about, like, as you've had those conversations, um, what have been some of the, the big challenges you've noticed, especially within the queer community? Yeah, um, I, I do also to say, I think it is a distinct challenge, maybe in the American context um, and also in many other places in the world. Right. And it sometimes feels as if questions of sexuality and gender are kind of the new, um, like, you know, occupy the place of theological controversy and even status confessionis in so many places um, that in other centuries, um, you know, 
more typically doctrinal uh, things have occupied. So, right. Um, and that puzzles me to some extent, right? So why should something so human, right? <laughs> Just who we are, um, who we are attracted to, uh, how we ch choose to express ourselves in the world, how we relate to others. Um, why should that um, be kind of a deal breaker for our ability to have um, communion with one another? Um, and, but yeah, right. So, so many um, church contexts are extremely patriarchal. Um, I mean, this is also something that's still very live with many of the students that, that come here and I assume in other places as well, right? That they are women or non-male people who have not felt, have felt something like a sense of call um, and that doesn't get affirmed in their context. Um, and that's even seen as, you know, uh, it's, it's held against them or they're put into their place. Um, and then queer and trans folks were, um, just, um, you know, our budding sense of who we are um, gets denounced as sinful um, and even, you know, identified with sin. Um, and that is, um, and sometimes in ways that are, you know, on the surface of, of uh, on the surface, slightly more loving than others, and sometimes very violent. Um, and um, that is extremely harmful. <laughs> it is extremely harmful. Also, not so in in my own journey, I've also had the wonderful experience um, of pe you know people in communities of faith, precisely because of their faith, um, um, being able to recognize and affirm people differently. Um, when I was a very young child, I was like five and six, and told everyone I was a boy, and I was growing up in a in a context that was um quite sexist <laughs> and um and like there was this elder gentleman in my congregation who was a farmer over 70 years old and he was like the first person who just you know used a masculine name for me and mm. and I was like very odd and he totally got it or like I have like I have like my own uh, you know um kind of personal sayings of just people that became mentors to me or examples to me in in my faith journey where I've often found like people who had like the most profound spirituality were actually quite capable of being much more capacious in their love and in their uh, in their openness to see God expressed in you know different lives differently than from what they were used to um and so i i mean i I feel like that is something that um I have benefited from a lot um mm. But if you don't get that, then um, the church can be a very bad place. Can you give some like general advice for uh, Christians and churches right now who are encountering um, LGBTQ uh, brothers, sisters and siblings in their congregations and really trying to do a better job of loving them, affirming them, even if that person is uh, struggling with their own theology on like what this means? Yeah, uh, and I'm not sure if I'm the best person to give advice. I mean, and and I think there's also always a need for contextual discernment. Um, I would say, um, first of all, listen, right, um, and make space. So for yeah, make space for people to ask questions, for people to 
explore who they are and how they find where they find God in their lives and and listen to those experiences, especially if they're different from your own. Um, when people tell you who they are, believe them, right? That sounds very simple. Um, and sometimes our sense of who we are changes um, and that's okay too. Um, so maybe, right, um, leaning into um, that love that precedes us and um, just if we, you know, if as people who profess God believe that God exists and God is love and God loves the world and God loves God's creatures, I think we can be slightly more relaxed, right, to encounter a difference in the world and listen yeah. before we um, need to put a name to it or compartmentalize it or um, precisely um, understand where it fits into our own world. Um, and if um, in churches we can be communities that make space for that, listening and learning together, I think that would go a long way. Um, in the concrete space of churches that are figuring that out, it can be important for those who are ready to do that to affirm that very openly, right? Um, to to put signs in the windows, to make clear statements, to um, so that first of all, people who are not sure, right, if they're welcome, can hear that, can hear that actively. Um, don't need to ask. Don't need to feel their way into that. Um, and and also don't have to do all the work themselves, right? Sometimes there's a there's a vicarious office of allyship um, mm. that I think is can be a very priestly office um, to um, um, as as people who may not you know have as much to lose as others stand in for those who may have. I love the way you put that a priestly office of allyship. That is beautiful. So your um your latest book. Um, after method, queer grace, conceptual design, and the possibility of theology. What are some of the the key topics that you wanted to focus on? Yeah, so in some ways, this book is a is a guild book, right? So I'm trying to um, bridge conversations that I see happening in different pockets of academic theology that are not talking to one another and kind of openly denounce one another. But in some ways, these also reflect maybe kind of um, factions that you get in the church around issues of, um, yeah, theological commitments and also including um, questions of gender and sexuality. So, um, right, but in the <laughs> in that um, academic or like scholarly version of it, I talk about systematic theology or like a theology that is more, that takes its orientation from commitments to truth and to sound doctrine and to the doctrines we have inherited and expressing them again and trying to put them into coherence ways of thinking and, and expression and uh, what sometimes is called constructive theologies or maybe sometimes contextual theologies or liberation theologies or uh, there was something else that now eludes me um, that um, take their orientation from um, real lives of real people and how faith hits the ground basically um and sometimes at least and it doesn't have to necessarily be this way i think right i mean this is why i wrote the book but um partially in my own upbringing i've seen these conversations as very disjunct and in many of the places i've been mm -hmm. they have seemed to be sometimes even mutually exclusive kind of denouncing one another and i think on grounds of method and um of like what counts as sound theology you know where do we 
uh, yeah, how do we work up our theological precepts and and propositions and um, and what yeah what counts as an argument and what doesn't? What are the right sources? What are the right um, uh, articulations? Um, and um, and once more, kind of you know zooming back and saying again, right? If we if we believe in God and that this is God's world, then probably there are important commitments in either of these conversations. Um, and at the same time, we can be slightly more relaxed and maybe even recognize that if we turn like the standards that we have developed um, for thinking about theology uh, into such um, exclusionary boundaries to the conversation of who gets to talk with us and how, um, then we're missing out. Or maybe we're also like idolized or like turning into an idol or into a model of salvation something that really isn't um so right that therefore the, the the catch line is kind of method cannot save us but that if we allow ourselves to listen to one another we have much to learn from both sides and not to aspire to maybe like a you know integration of all the things i think particularly the queer side of the conversation has very um sound um visceral reactions and theoretical reactions to like projects of integrating everything into a maybe even better system of thinking. But also on the doctrinal side, I think there are good hunches about um, God's reality exceeding um, the the ways of thinking and talking about them that we come up with and maybe orient ourselves a little bit more by these both these cautions, um, but then allowing ourselves to be more open to the conversation. And I bring in the the language of design theory because I found it first it's it's the one as a metaphor, right? It allows you to bridge the systematic like if mm. you build something, it has to have some sort of coherence, otherwise everything falls down. Um, and the constructive, obviously, there's a there's a um, design and building metaphor there. Um, but to kind of say, right, what are the worlds? What are the buildings? What are the landscapes? What are the tools that our theological conceptions are are building for us? Um, taking into account how they actually interact uh, with the world, what impact they make, how they are used, how they're maybe also misused, and and to kind of make that part of our reflection as theologians. It's not something, you know, um, I mean, uh, design theory gives a, a lot of um, good examples of well-intentioned design that then ends up excluding certain bodies or certain abilities. Um, and um, And, or even being outright harmful but also designs that get, you know, things that get used in totally different ways than they were intended. And what I really like about um, design theory is that it takes seriously the user, right? It takes seriously mm. their experience. Um, whereas I think there's some temptation often in theology to say, like, if we just get the ideas right, then people have to understand them. And if we teach them to understand them, then they will use them in the right ways. And to say it's often not that way around. People encounter ideas, they encounter things, and then they do stuff with them. Um, and whether we intend it for that or not, it is part of the design. The design is not only what the designer put into it. Um, it is also how things get used. Um, so that would make us as professional theologians kind of uh, just one stakeholder among, among others who have to think more critically about the other factors that we have to take into account um, and and are not just a misunderstanding. So for example, right? Um, because it sounds very, <laughs> very, it is very theoretical. Um, so in design, you can have the door that you, you know, you have to pull or push, and typically the handle should signal what it is for. Um, 
And sometimes, and this is the famous case of the Norman doors, uh, doors are designed in a way that they actually communicate to you how to use them, but that's not how you use them. So you run into a door mm -hmm. and kind of just, you know, actually don't get in um, because you're not supposed to push, you're supposed to pull. Um, so fixing a door to a, a sign to the door, you know, pull, doesn't fix the problem, right? Our the affordances of the door, the way the door communicates to you long before you consciously read the sign, um, will make you interact with it with it in a certain way that is different from that. Um, and to think about theology in that way, right? Like um, then there are of course doors that um, are supposed to grant access, but some are also supposed to remain shut in certain situations. There are security doors, there are doors that are heavy for a purpose, but then some people can operate them easier than others. And to just kind of think through theology in that way. Mm -hmm. um, think of particular doctrines in that way. The doctrine of sin is one, right? So we talked earlier about how sin can be weaponized um, against um, and has been weaponized so often um, to tell people not just that they're doing things wrong, but they're being that they are wrong. They are bad. Um, and um, and to so both to discredit um, and also pathologize um, their experiences, um, their desires, um, and their ways of relating to one another and to the world. Um, so one can ask, is that what sin language is for? Um, is mm -hmm. that kind of the theological purpose it is um, fulfilling, right? And you will find queer theologians who say, for good reasons, right, who push back against that application of the language and say, we're not sinful. Our desires are no more or less sinful than other people's desires. Um, and, um, and you will find queer theologians who will say, actually, we are sinful, um, and so are you. This is not, uh, this is not um, a design that you get to yield to exclude some people while you get to, um, you know, uplift others. If anything, right, this is very Calvinist, maybe like total depravity type thing, but like if anything, um, sin as a condition that we find ourselves in that um, alienates us from one another, that afflicts us, that we suffer under, and that also expresses itself in, in wrong ways of relating to one another, in harmful ways of relating to one another, is something that we all live under and that should put us into solidarity with one another. And Actually, this is the good news. Mm. First of all, the first person to extend solidarity here is God. Um, so the sin is already, you know, it's already contained. And we do all the time, you know, experience it in our lives. And again, by sin, I don't mean like, you know, particular wrongdoings or what we culturally identify as such. But I think there's, I mean, actually, I find it so fascinating that a lot of critical theory, um, queer theory in particular, I think... Um, identifies, right, something that I, as a theologian, would call sin, right? Pervasive structures in the world that limit our agency, that make us unfree, and that force us, basically, into, um, into harmful ways of relating to one another, um, that exacerbate themselves, even if we don't want it, um, if, even if we are good intentioned, and so forth. That is That can also, right, happen mm -hmm. in all kinds of sexual and gendered relationships, but it's mm -hmm. way beyond them, but many of these critical theories actually um, have ways of talking something that I think could give us theologians back sin language in a different way, 
um, that is not moralizing, um, but is both highly critical and actually invites us into practices of solidarity more than um, pathologization, you know. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. That's that's a super helpful way of, of looking at that, um, seeing solidarity rather than division and kind of bringing people together. Because you're right, like, we see the sin in the systems right now, especially towards LGBTQ folks, right? Um, I'm thinking about all the uh, laws right now that are uh, going after parents who are trying to support their transgender kids, right? They're trying to have doctors medically care for their kids um, to help them with their transition. Um, and that's being restricted in very ways. I would say that's a very sinful uh, yeah. legislation because it's very harmful to that child uh, and to that family uh, who's being harmed and uh, the, all these barriers are put in place. Um, so I do really, I do really appreciate the way you phrase that because sin uh, is not only within us, but it's also within systems, and it's very important that we call it out. And I think queer theology does a really good job of calling that out. Well, Hannah, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, before we go, uh, is there anything that you'd like to share about uh, your new book uh, for those who are interested in getting a copy? I'm already more interested in my next book, typically, but I really <laughs> like the cover design. Uh, it was done by an amazing artist, um, Jakob van Loon. Um, and uh, I also um, want to give a shout out to Micah Cronin, who came up with the phrase Query Grace um, in a paper that is still unpublished. I'm very, uh, you know, uh, that is very uh, frustrating. Um, yeah, so what I, um, maybe the, the thing that I want to share is this idea of, of Queer Grace that we find uh, that they're in, in light of all the harm, all the frustration, and all the unease that being in the world sometimes um, presents, right? Um, there can be, and I, I see that in myself, there can be a, a temptation to negativity, to critique. And I think critique is immensely, immensely, immensely um, important. Um, and that there is something that actually still precedes all that, right? And that we can live out of and live into. Um, ultimately, that is God's queerness. Um, that is not just, you know, uh, a queerness that is kind of created by the exclusions that we do in terms of, uh, you know, uh, society. Um, but is first of all, this amazing ex spilling over exuberance of being um, that then cannot be put into any system. And I think that's something that, you know, many queer people find in unexpected places in their lives, um, but can maybe also um, invite others to experience in other places. And other, you know, there are other languages for that. It doesn't necessarily, uh, queerness names a version of it, obviously. Um, I think an important one. Um, yeah, but so... Um, I'm right now already interested about the next book, which is also, I mean, it is coming out of the um, temptation to negativity, tentatively titled Against Humanity. Mm. Um, but it's trying to kind of cash in on these hunches that the conceptions that we use, um, while they try to name certain things, they also always um, have edges and boundaries and what happens at these boundaries. And I'm particularly interested in the boundary that language of humanity draws, right? Even as we try to uplift human dignity and affirm human rights, and that continues to be incredibly um, important work. 
but the, from the reports that we get at these boundary negotiations, right? Like from from black uh, friends, from queer and crip friends of like how humanity language and, and from decolonial um, perspectives as well uh, for how that language is not unambiguously good and also creates sharp edges of dehumanizing um, both other humans and the more than human creation. So how do we how do we redesign that? Maybe not, you know, conclusively find the best way to draw this boundary, but to better take into account what happens at this boundary is what I'm next excited about. Wow. How do you find time to do all this, Hannah? <laughs> this is my, uh, this is, I, yeah. If, <laughs> you know, this is, if I had a superpower, it, it would be the time uh, somehow being able to twist and turn and expand time all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but, for the time being, <laughs> yeah, nice, always. Well, um, I love seeing all those books in your in the background. You are a voracious reader. You got so much going on right there. Um, well, Hannah, thank you so much for being on the podcast for sharing out your new book, uh, folks. I want to encourage you all to check out After Method: Queer Grace, Conceptual Design, and the Possibility of Theology. I'll have a link in the bio of the podcast episode, in the YouTube video, um, as well as on the blog. Take care. And thank you so much for your curiosity and for, um, yeah, for this conversation. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Dogato Podcast. As always, you can get the show notes, video links, and resources mentioned in this episode on my blog at mikedelgado.org. You can also get updates to new shows and get access to the full archive of past shows by following the Dogato Podcast on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And if you ever have suggestions for future topics or guests you want to hear from on this show, please reach out. My email is delgado at ucla.edu. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll chat more next time.